Welcome to the Generations United podcast, where we share insights from experts from the intergenerational field about how those practices improve the lives of children, youth, and older adults, and the communities where they live. I'm your host, Donna Butts, Executive Director of Generations United. I am really, really delighted that today our guest is Robin Wind-Tiger, who's a coordinator for the Muscogee Creek Nation Foster Care and Adoption Program. She also chairs the Substitute Care Committee for the Oklahoma Indian Child Welfare Association. And we at Generations United are most grateful that Robin serves as the Generations United Grand Voice member. As a Grand Voice, Robin is part of a select group of grandparents and other relative caregivers from across the country. Our grand members serve as strategic partners to inform policies and practices affecting grand families and help reveal the family's strengths, their needs, and service gaps. They provide guidance and feedback on Generations United resources and advocate on behalf of grand families. And that guidance that Robin and her colleagues provide is invaluable. It has strengthened our work so much. So again, we are just extremely grateful. And Robin, I want to say welcome to the show. And thank you very much for making the time to join me and our listeners. Thank you for having me. So let's start with your role as a member of the Grand Network. Would you let our listeners know how it is that you came to be a member of the Grand Voices Network? Sure. I was honored to be selected for the Grand Voices Racial Equity Initiative a couple of years ago. And I found out about this program whenever I was preparing to go to the National Indian Child Welfare Association. I saw, I can't remember whether it was a flyer or something, but anyway, I joined because I was then and am now frustrated with the lack of services, specifically culturally appropriate services for relative caregivers. And I was hoping to learn how to do something about it. That's terrific. I'm really glad because I think that's helped to strengthen the voice so much and brought in such a unique and important perspective. So can you tell us a little bit more about what work you've done as a member of the Grand Network? Sure. As a member, I have been to Washington, D.C., to advocate for federal laws, policies, and programs related to the issues that relative caregivers face. I've spoken on several panels and at a couple of conferences about my experience as a caregiver, initiated discussions with tribal legislators regarding services that our tribal citizens caring for relatives may need, and worked with local media to spread the word about grand families and the resources that Generations United offers. Thank you. You know, I think sometimes that people don't realize how important their voices are, because as someone who lives in Oklahoma, your voice is so much stronger than ours is when you're meeting with your members back here in Washington or in the state of Oklahoma. But sometimes folks are a little bit timid about actually communicating or sharing their voices with policymakers. So do you have any advice that you would give to other relative caregivers about how to effectively raise their voices on important issues like you do? The first thing I would say is to educate yourself. Find out what kind of policies and laws are being passed or being considered that might affect someone in your situation. Definitely raise your voice because these children are our future. Don't take no for an answer. And Generations United is a wonderful resource. At GU.org. We have a great page. You can find all kinds of resources there. And one of the things they'll find on there is your bio and picture, too, as a Grand Voices member. So, again, we're grateful for that. Now, we're all living in a really unprecedented and difficult time for multiple reasons. But there is a current 
COVID pandemic that we're all living in, and it's probably going to be going on for a little while. It's a time when adults over the age of 60 or those with compromised immune systems are being asked to isolate themselves and not have contact with children. This is impossible to ask for grandparents raising grandchildren, and in particular for Native families who are being disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. For example, the rate of infection and death are staggering in the Navajo Nation. In May 2020, their mortality and infection rate was higher than most states. So Robin, can you talk about how the pandemic is impacting your community? Sure. In Oklahoma, our cases have spiked significantly since the beginning of June when the governor reopened the state. Yesterday, we had over 800 new cases, which was a huge jump for us. Of course, a big part of Oklahoma's economy is tied to the oil business, so there's been significant job loss as well as loss of income to the state, which affects services. So our citizens are also having major problems accessing unemployment and other benefits. And just like in other states, there have been shortages of basic supplies and steep increases in the cost for those supplies. Unfortunately, for whatever reason, I'm not seeing many people social distancing or wearing masks. And as you mentioned, many relative caregivers, like myself, I have a compromised immune system, you know, and of course, I can't social distance from the baby when I have him here. I don't have him full time right now, but there are just a lot of people who do, and they cannot social distance. So I know that the worry has increased with those families for when those children do go out into the community for visits with parents or to go to counseling, if those are available, they have to worry about the child being exposed and will the child be okay? And then will they bring back something and expose the caregiver? And I know that one of my biggest fears was to not be able to care for that child and who's going to care for him if I am ill or if something were to happen to me permanently. So that's really been weighing on people's minds. I know that. We hear that from a number of caregivers that the biggest fear is not being able to care for the child or who's going to step in if they're not healthy. So I think that is so important for people to realize. So when you think about some of the services and supports that you mentioned, are racial inequities playing a role in whether or not people can access the necessary supports and supplies and services that they need to help address the impact of COVID? Well, many in our Native communities work jobs that are considered to be essential. So they're more likely to be out where they can be exposed. And not only that, but Native communities are more likely to have multiple generations living in the same household. And that adds an extra layer of worry for those who have to go out and risk exposure. So the worry is bringing that virus back and jeopardizing our future, which is our children and our elders who are our cultural knowledge base. So in addition to that, many live, especially in Oklahoma, in rural areas without reliable, if any, phone or internet services, which makes accessing school or other services impossible. So our area is pretty spread out. And like I said, many people live in rural communities and they depend on someone else or maybe like the bus for transport. We have little transport vans that go out and to take them shopping or to take them and the children to, you know, whatever services they need. And those are not available or if they are, it's on a limited basis right now. So the rural communities are really having a rough time right now. You know, what you're talking about is the pandemic has really exacerbated or shined a light on a lot of the inequities and really heightened heightened awareness among some people that we need to address those inequities. And that is 
one of the things I think we all hope is that people are going to realize that there are differences if you're living in a rural area without access to the internet. Some of the things that we say should be so easy are not so easy. And yet you also touched on what is an incredible strength in Native communities, Native families, and other families. And that is that multi-generational household, that ability to connect to the future and the past. So we need to find ways to protect the family members so that, again, they can live in those situations that help all family members and make families strong. So I wanted to switch to something I think is very exciting. Generations United is getting ready to release two new toolkits for people working with grand families. One was specifically designed with and for African-American families, and the other for American, Indian, and Alaskan Native families. And you're quoted in the kit. Your input was so valuable and insightful. You're quoted in the toolkit, which is called American Indian and Alaskan Native Grandfamilies, Helping Children Thrive Through Connection to Family and Cultural Identity. You mentioned how your understanding of the importance of keeping kids connected to culture and connected to family is so much deeper. Can you tell our listeners what positive role that connection to culture has played in your own family. As we know, Donna, statistics show that children in care have better outcomes when raised in their community and placed with their own families. So I'm a citizen of the Muscogee Creek Nation. I'm also eligible for citizenship with the Cherokee Nation. My father was raised by his grandparents who were confined to boarding schools. And as a result, I only know a few words of each tribal language and had to learn what I know of ceremonial practices and tribal history through others. Both my sister and I have tried to ensure that our children have access to our tribal languages and cultural practices. Fortunately, as a result of that, one of my sons is nearly fluent and is active in ceremonial practices, and the other has the advantage of being able to access those if he chooses. He has a choice now, which is something more than my father had. And to me, I believe the knowledge of and access to language and cultural practices are the right of every child. It really is a protective factor, isn't it? Yes, it is. have those deep, deep roots. Mm -hmm. And you know what, what I've been thinking about as we've been so fortunate to be involved in this work and learning from you and your colleagues, it reminds me, I grew up in Salem, Oregon. And Salem, when I was growing up, was home to one of those schools. What struck me, because I was working with teenagers at the time, was going into the school to work with some of the teenagers and talking to them about what they valued and what they missed, what they missed the most was not being able to drum, that they were being kept from their mm. traditional practices, that they weren't learning, that they weren't passing down the culture and the stories and the ability to know how to drum and what the different ceremonies were. So mm. I think it is so important to help strengthen and give roots to our children. So do you have any specific story or example that comes to mind about your own children? I mean, sometimes some things that people point out to me as being something that we just do culturally, I just do. That's just the way things happen. When we think about intergenerational practices, we always talk about intergenerational connections and building those connections as reweaving our cultural fabric, as not going backwards, but going forward and making sure that we're keeping generations connected. And yet it's such a natural thing for you and for many of the Native Americans and African Americans that we've worked with. They don't think about intergenerational programs or intergenerational practices. It is what it is, and it's such a strength. Like I said, my father was raised by his grandparents, and I remember being at 
their home. And if someone came to the door, we were told, you know, hide, you have to go hide. And my spot was behind the couch. I did not understand why that was occurring. I didn't understand why she wanted us to hide. Now that I'm older and I know that they were taken to boarding school and people were just rounded up and taken off, I understand that. But my mother's family, I spent a lot of time with my maternal grandparents and they are non-Indian. When people would come to their home and knock on the door, I would go get behind the couch. They're like, oh, she's just shy. My kids, when people come knock on the door when they were younger, I'd just be like, shh, go to your room. That's something that I had to learn and to understand why we did that. So there are so many interwoven cultural factors due to the historical trauma that we've been through. That is such a powerful story. I can just imagine how terrifying that would be as a child and your grandparents trying to protect you, but the way of protecting you was also frightening. And I can Mm -hmm. see how that would impact over time. Thank you very much for sharing that. I think that's important for people to hear to help understand. So this kind of leads us into more conversation about some of the inequities. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on how racial equity impacts efforts to pass along culture, tradition, and information, or if the story that you just told, which is that sometimes there are things you don't want to pass on, occur. I don't know if you have any thoughts. We all know that there's a long history of tribal cultures and traditions being suppressed or even eliminated. And it goes all the way back to first contact between tribal nations and Europeans. But I can give you an example of my own recent history with my grandson. When he was placed in my home, he was in the custody of the state of Oklahoma. And I really enjoy attending our cultural ceremonies. And in the summertime is when we have our dances. We don't do powwow, we do stomp dances. And it's out in the woods, way out in the woods. And it's out there for a reason. Because when we were forced to come to Oklahoma, we had to hide these kind of things. And you couldn't just have them in the middle of the town. Corn is almost a religious ceremony as well. It's very important to participate so that you can have a good year. Because he was in the custody of the state of Oklahoma, he was not allowed to go. Because when we dance on Green Corn, it's all night long and into the day. Then you rest and you eat and then you go the next day. So the worker for the state of Oklahoma said that it was dirty out there. It was hot. There were bugs. She didn't know what you people were up to, what people were out there. How could I keep him safe out there? And I kept trying to explain to her that, like, when you go to church on Sunday, I don't ask what kind of people are there, you know, and I don't tell you you can't take your child to be christened at church because there might be someone unsafe there. So he didn't get to go the entire time he was in the custody of the Department of Human Services for the state of Oklahoma. It still happens today with cases that I'm involved in. That's just one example. You know, I think that's a really important example of keeping someone from their culture or their roots or imposing someone's values on other values, other culture. And I so support the voice that you're bringing and the stories that you're willing to share so we can try to help people understand and work towards changes that need to be made in our child welfare system and in other systems that support families and should be there to support families, not tear them apart. In addition to the COVID epidemic, we're also living through a time where there's a lot of unrest about injustices, and especially in the wake of the police killings of George Floyd and countless other people of color. And I was reminded of your quote when you were watching coverage of the protest in Tulsa recently. You said that having raised two boys to adulthood, and as well as having my grandson, I realized I may have taught them differently about interacting with authorities than other mamas. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about that. I was watching the protest live on TV in Tulsa, and they were explaining why people were protesting. 
a young man who lost his life and cried out for his mama. And that just broke my heart. And I began thinking, what if that was one of my boys? I realized that I'd probably been subconsciously teaching them how to respond to police differently than the average mom in my neighborhood. I justified this to myself by thinking that I wanted them to respect authority because my ex-husband was a police officer when they were small. And we are a family who supports the police. As I got older and they grew and I grew, I guess it suddenly became very important for me to help them understand that they needed to appear non-threatening. I have one son. He's very identifiable and he's very big. I don't know how that happened. But he's, he's a very big guy. And then I have one that's blonde. So I taught them such things like to keep their hands on the wheel. Don't move quickly. Don't reach for things. If you're pulled over by a police officer, you're to be very polite. Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Never be argumentative. I guess I attempted to justify those things in my own head as I'm going to have polite sons. But then again, I was thinking that maybe I also was remembering how my grandfather looked after he'd been beaten nearly to death and left in a ditch in downtown Tulsa when I was a child. I think I might have been about five. That wasn't unusual for my father's father and some of his brothers. I guess I just never wanted them to experience that. I was thinking about all of that, and that's when I realized that my motivation for that must have been fear. And I don't want to ever have to get a call that one of my sons is in the hospital or worse, in the morgue because of a misunderstanding. Knowing that it was motivated by fear, is there a way that you would have that discussion differently, or would you still have it the way that you had it with them? I have thought about that quite a lot, and I don't know that I would have it any differently. They are both good men. Although I raised them the same, they don't look the same. So one has different experiences than the other. So I just tried to do the best I could to make sure that they made it to adults and have learned enough throughout their lives to not be hurt. I'm sad that I even have to think that. That's what, <laughs> that's what bothers me. Sure. And now you have your grandson. And do you have those conversations with him? And would you advise other people on how to have that conversation with their grandson? son or their grandchildren? Well, my grandson, he loves everybody. He has sisters that have different hair and eye color than he has. He has immediate family members that do not look like him. He knows he is Muskogee Creek. He's very proud of that. I'm not quite sure that he knows what that means yet. He's six. I have to try to guide his daddy in helping him understand what that means, but I don't even know how to explain it right now to him. It's a tough one. It really is. So I want to go back to another quote from the American Indian and Alaska Native Grand Families Helping Children Thrive Through Connection to Family and Cultural Identity Toolkit. You said, grandbabies are a whole new level of love. And I thought that was just really so wonderful. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And what's that level of love that you're experiencing sure. with your grandson? I was young when I had my boys. I had both of them by the time I was 21. You know, I was very young and trying to get through college and trying to work and raise them. And I feel like I didn't pay as much attention to what was going on with them as I would have liked to. And I actually have four grandchildren. The others are girls. But my little guy is the only one that was placed in my home. So the whole other level started when his sister was born. She's 10 now. And I look at them and I want so much for them. So much more than I have, so much more than their parents have. I want their futures to be bright, safe, healthy, happy. And I don't want them ever to go through dangerous things or to see some of the things that I've had to see or my dad has had to see or my grandparents. And that saying that you used to hear about my heart swells, that's a fact because it really does. I can feel it and there is nothing, nothing that I won't do for them. And I know that that's the same for these other relative caregivers that have 
placement, whether out of foster care or just informal placement of those children. There's nothing we won't do for them. He's actually on vacation right now with his mother. <laughs> Miserable. Like I can't wait for him to come home. <laughs> What you mentioned, it's what I hear so often from people. I remember being in Northern Ireland back during the Troubles and speaking with a Protestant cab driver and later a Catholic cab driver, and they both said the same thing. They wanted a better world for their children and their grandchildren. It's what we all want. I have to say, Robin, that you're helping to make this a better world. Everything that you're doing is a grand voice, your willingness to talk, to elevate, to share your stories. It's so powerful and you really are making a difference. So we're Thanks. really grateful to you. I don't know if you have anything else that you wanted to say before we start to wrap this up. I just want to tell you that I am overjoyed with having been a part of the Generations United team. You have excellent people who run this thing. I really wanted to learn how to advocate because sometimes I'm just a grandma that has a grandkid. I want people to understand we have to keep our children connected so that they can carry on for the future. If they don't learn our language, if they don't learn our ceremonies, then they're gone. We're not really a tribe anymore. I just appreciate the opportunity to be able to learn how to do this and to be able to take advantage of these opportunities to help people understand. You have a strong, powerful, and important voice, and we are very, very grateful and thankful that we get to work with you. So thank you for everything you're doing, and thank you for making the time today, too. Thank you. The new Race Equity Toolkits will be or are available on Generations United's webpage, and there are four people working with them on behalf of Grand Families, so I'd encourage you to look those up. I want to thank the audience for tuning in and for listening to the Generations United podcast. Remember to please leave a review of the podcast on Apple Podcasts or your other favorite streaming platform, because what we want to do is make sure that these messages are getting put out as broadly as possible. So it's by leaving a review, by giving us a good rating and by sharing this that we can share those messages. And most importantly, though, I want to thank our guest, Robin Wintiger, for her willingness to share and talk with us today. So thank you again, Robin. Thank you. And everyone, remember, if you don't have somebody younger in your life, if you don't have somebody older in your life, find someone. We are stronger together. Thank you. <laughs>